You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The word scam, it may not sound as sort of severe, but actually we need to sort of think about that terminology. A scam is a fraud, a fraud is a crime. And, you know, somebody could lose a small amount of money or they could lose their life savings. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Later in the show, we've got Carol Terrio's interview with Max Bruce from Action Fraud UK. And we are back. A couple of things before we jump in here. Joe, I have a cold. Just uh, for our listeners' sake, yes, I know, I'm a little stuffy today, but we'll make the best of it. We've got some follow-up today. We had a listener named Rick write in, and he said, I provide IT services for many churches in the Atlanta area. And he says they're seeing the fake pastor iTunes gift card scam hmm. about three to four campaigns a week. Really? Uh, across the 10 churches where they handle IT. Now, we talked about that about two months ago, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been a few weeks. Yeah. But he says he's been educating the staff. Uh, he says, unfortunately, church staff and volunteers are quite often pretty tech illiterate. Right. And uh, he said they had a targeted attack where someone almost performed an outbound wire transfer Hmm. for an invoice while the pastor was out of town. He said the email conversation was pretty convincing. In the end, the only thing that prevented this was my insistence that the church block all wire transfers. I would recommend, as we're going to talk here later, that you have your church people listen to this podcast. Well, I want them to listen every week, Joe. Well, right, of course. <laughs> but I would say, you know, as part of as part of your training and part of your IT services, you should recommend to all the church staff they should listen to Hacking Humans. I cannot disagree with that. That's why we're here. <laughs> so Rick says uh, he spent years uh, forecasting revenue for a government contractor, and he developed a sort of a spidey sense to avoid fraud. So thanks, Rick, for sending that in. It's interesting to hear that this is uh, perhaps more widespread than we had originally thought. Those folks are lucky to have you looking out for them. Indeed. So my story this week, this was another one sent in from a listener. A listener named Jordan sent this in. And he said, I thought you might be interested in this online cryptocurrency investment scam. This is a website, cozenxbase.com. And Jordan writes in and says, it seems investors never see their money again after signing up with one of the packages. What? The reason this scam is interesting is that it is quite believable. The returns are obviously outrageous. However, as far as the site goes, it is quite convincing. He said the best thing we can do is spread the word and inoculate as many people as possible to this kind of scam. So I went and looked at this Cozenex base thing, and it's interesting. I mean, Jordan's absolutely right. At first glance, this is a well-designed website. It looks very nice. Looks legit. Yep. You get down to the part where they talk about their different plans. They even have like people that look like they run the place. They have a bronze plan that's $2,000, a silver plan that's $10,000, the gold plan, which they say is their their popular plan, that's uh-huh. $20,000, the diamond plan is $50,000, and the black plan is $100,000. I don't know why we go from precious metals to uh, complete darkness in, in our <laughs> right. descriptions of the – well, I get the black Pro- plan is new. Gemstones. Yeah, the, the black plan is their new plan, so maybe they don't know about platinum. But here's the thing. They're talking returns for 30 to 50 percent monthly return. I'd say if you consult with any real financial advisor, they'd say that that is absolutely bonkers. Right. The very, you know, the very first thing that comes to my mind when you 
hear this as Ponzi scheme, but right. I, I bet it's not even that sophisticated. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I did a little bit of quick digging into this site, the usual stuff you can do. I did some reverse image search ah. on the images of all of their alleged employees. And sure enough, they're all just stock photos. Really? Yep. These employees show up in a lot of different places. So either they're <laughs> they're uh, got a lot of side hustles going on or right. they are not actually employees of this place. I did a, a Google Maps search on their business address. It doesn't exist. It's Yeah, it's in the there's, middle of a field somewhere. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's not that address doesn't exist. It doesn't just, even resolve to an address. Nope. Nope. Awesome. Um, not at all. The other interesting thing, again, just a quick Google search brought up, I guess, some some zombie pages on their website of, of stuff they used to do. And this uh, Cozen X-Base Inc., it, one of the pages that popped up, it says, get paid to surf. Are you ready to start making money online with little effort? We are an ideal get paid to website that you can trust. <laughs> we have been around for a while and we actually pay. Don't waste your time with scam sites. Start earning real cash now. So, I can't respond to this. This one has me so flummoxed. It's just, I, it's awesome. So I guess they moved on from this get paid to web surf thing. To, right. That was probably some kind of click <laughs> click farm fraud thing where they were just sending people to pages to jack up the revenue for ads that they were selling somewhere. So too good to be true, of course. Of course. And, you know, just some quick digging on my part. I didn't do anything sophisticated. I did a couple of Google searches. Uh, you did more than 99.9% .9 of the people would do. Yeah, that's I mean, true. Uh, hopefully most of the people would come to this website and go, there's no way this is real and just be gone, right? But anybody that would be tempted by this should then spend the time to do something that you did. Reverse image search is powerful. It's a remarkably good, powerful tool that we have that we didn't have two or three years ago. <laughs> and you can look up the people that are on this web page in that reverse image search and know immediately that these are just models who have posed for some stock pictures. And I think this is another one of those examples where if, is, if you just asked a friend about this, particularly I think most of us probably know somebody who, who has knowledge when it comes to finances and investing and so forth. Just, yep. This is one of those things. If you're going to spend some money on anything like this, run it by a friend and say, what do you think about this? Yeah, don't keep that to yourself. All right. Well, uh, again, thanks, Jordan, for sending this in. This is a good one and uh, certainly one for people to know about. Joe, what do you have for us this week? All right, Dave. On this podcast, we generally avoid technical topics, right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, so sure. we really want this podcast to be approachable to just about anyone. I want my parents, I want my aunts and uncles, my friends who aren't really technical. Uh, I have a lot of them, actually. I want anybody to be able to listen to this podcast. And I want that technical people who listen to this podcast or other podcasts like the CyberWire recommend this podcast to everyone. I really want it to be approachable and, and you want that too. That's, sure. That's kind of the mission of this podcast. Yeah. Yep. So that being said, let's let's review something for maybe a new listener or somebody who's new to the idea of social engineering. You hear us talk about phishing a lot. P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. It's spelled phishing, and that is a longtime hacker tradition going back to using the yeah. phone system. Phone freaking, yeah. Phone freaking, right, where freaking was spelled with a PH. Phishing is where an attacker will send out a bunch of emails with some malicious payload or a malicious link in an attempt to get some of the people that they send it to to respond or to take some action. It never ends well for the end user, but it's, it's pretty easy to spot and pretty easy to avoid. Then there's spear phishing, where somebody goes out and they will gather a bunch of open source intelligence, right? Which I'm going to talk about open source intelligence gathering next week. Okay. Because that's a very important part of social engineering. And they're going to use that information to make an email seem more plausible. And they're not going to send out a bunch of emails. They're only going to send it out to one person. Right. So that's that's spear phishing versus phishing. Phishing, I'm casting a wide net. Spear phishing, just like the name implies, I'm going after one 
guy. So finally, we have whaling. It's the same thing as spearfishing. The only difference is the target. If you think about the concept of spearfishing, I'm going to stand in a river or stand on a beach and I'm going to gig a fish and that's going to be it. But if I'm going whaling, I'm going after something big. You got a harpoon. Right. I got a harpoon yeah. <laughs> and, and it's the same process, but I'm going after a whale. So in the, in this case, like casinos have whales that come in. Those are the big spenders. So do spammers and scammers and, and social engineers. They go after CEOs and CFOs. And there is an article from Juliet Van Wagnen on BizTech magazine called Cyber Attacks That Target the C-Suite Are on the Rise. And this kind of falls into the, I saw this coming category, right? <laughs> but it's interesting. The article quotes Catherine Hutt, who is the national spokesperson for the Better Business Bureau. And she says, we believe there's been a recent uptick in whaling scams aimed at businesses. And we want to warn companies to alert their employees about this kind of potential fraud. The FBI said in a report in July that losses from business email compromise were up 136% from December of 2016 to May of 2018. Wow. So a little more than a year. Yeah, it's not even, it's about a year and a half, and it's more than doubled. So business email compromise is the main goal of a whaling attack, because if I can get a whaling attack to be successful, I can get a CEO to install some malicious software that gives me access to his email account, then I can very easily impersonate that CEO. There's other phishing scams where I impersonate the CEO from an outside email address. And I look like I may have an email address that kind of looks like the CEO's email address, but it isn't. An astute employee might spot that and my attack might not be successful. But if I actually have control of the CEO's email address, it's almost like having the keys to the kingdom. Right. Very dangerous. So what can be done about these kind of attacks? The Better Business Bureau has five tips. They say, number one, be wary of short messages. Because that's how these things start. They start with short messages and the scammers aren't going to write long messages. They want to engage you and, and get you started with a short message like, I need your help on something. Hey, do you have time to help me with something? Right. So this isn't going to start with the long Nigerian bank scam emails right. that we see all it's the time. It's going to start with something very quick and very easy. Uh -huh. Double check before downloading. This is something we say all the time. Krebs has a rule on this. If you didn't ask for it, you don't install it. <laughs> so somebody sends you an email, just be careful. Now, of course, it's really hard to tell people who have to open documents as part of their jobs that they receive an email not to open documents in their yeah. email. So that becomes a technical solution problem which is kind of beyond the scope, like I said, of this podcast. So we won't talk about that here. Think about how you share. Never send sensitive personal or proprietary information over email, regardless of who's asking you for it. This is a good policy. I've worked at companies where we had ways to securely transfer files to credentialed outsiders. So we had a third-party service where we did that, and we, we would set our clients up with access to it, and they could access it. It's almost like having a, a second way to distribute that kind of information. Watch out for emails to groups, of course, because if somebody compromises your CEO's email or they're trying to scam you with a, with a fake email, they're going to have a lot more success if they reach out to more people that just increases their probability of success. Of course, the simple way around this is that a scammer will send out a bunch of individual emails rather than an email to a group. But so I, I say still be wary of individual emails you have. And finally, and I think this is the most important tip and the best advice you can give. Businesses should set up a process for handling these kind of requests and transactions. Handling the request of information, sending information to somebody or sending a payment to a third party should always have a business process that gets followed. 
And that process should always include some kind of verification from another person involved in the, in the company. Right. Another set person. of eyes. Another set of eyes. Exactly. And as I've said a number of times, if you get an email from your CEO requesting you to transfer a large amount of money, it makes sense to just to pick up the phone and say, did you request me to send this money? If the CEO is irritated with this and goes, yes, 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 I asked you to do that, remind them that you're just making sure that the information you've received is authentic and accurate. And if you're a CEO and someone calls you and, and asks you if you did, in fact, send them that information and send them that request, the first two words out of your mouth should be thank you for verifying <laughs> right, that. Right, right. Try to be accommodating of your employees who are trying to protect your business. Right? Yeah, the, that little pause could be the difference that it makes in saving you uh, from being scammed. And maybe even sending out an email that says, hey, I I want to thank my human resource director for touching base with me before sending out a payment that I did actually request or or maybe, hey, because she sent or he sent me a, uh, a message, we stopped the fraudulent attack. Thank you. Good job. All right. Well, it's a good one. Good tips there. And uh, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day this week comes from a listener. His name is Dan. He sent us this catch of the day. He said, my name is Dan, and I'm a huge fan of the Hacking Humans podcast. Love what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Dan. We Thanks, appreciate Dan. that. He said, I recently got a voicemail from a number I don't recognize in Floral Park, New York. Of course, I didn't answer. This is a transcript from the voicemail, and it goes like this. There's a lawsuit against you regarding tax deficiency in tax fraud. Ignoring this will be an intentional second attempt to avoid federal law. For any further information, immediately speak to federal agent callback number. And it has a number. I repeat, and has the number. And it says, thank you. So short and sweet. And, and Dan pointed out something that you've said many times. Federal agents don't call and leave automated voice messages. No, they do not. No, they write letters. Yes. Or show <laughs> or up. Or they show up at your door. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And also, Dan had a nice little PS here. He said, uh, well, I can't tell you where I work. I can tell you that through the month of October, they're running a contest and putting our names into a raffle every time we catch a phishing email that they send to our work emails. That's a great idea. Yeah. He says, if we fall for the attack, we have to go through the phishing training once more. Mm -hmm. He says, I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. Gamify it a little bit, uh, make it fun, but also just put people on alert that there's a good side and a bad side. I guess a carrot and a stick when it comes to right. uh, trying to catch those phishing emails. I, I like that in this, in this case, the stick is just training. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, right, exactly. You lose your uh, your annual bonus. Right, no, that would yeah. not be a good step. <laughs> no, no. All right, well, Dan, thanks for sending that in. Uh, it's a good one. And always, we, uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like for us to use as our catch of the day, please send it to us. Coming up next, we've got Carol Terrio's interview with Max Bruce from Action Fraud UK. And we are back, uh, Joe. It's great to welcome back to the show Carol Terrio. She is our CyberWire UK correspondent. And this week she's interviewing Max Bruce. He's from an organization called Action Fraud UK. Here's Carol Terrio's interview with Max Bruce. So we all know that online scams are designed to dupe us. They try to get us into doing something like give money away or hand over access to sensitive info. Sometimes they just want us to click on a link in order to install some nasty malware onto our machines. And we keep hearing about how online scams are getting worse out there. Some are sickening. During Hurricane Florence that recently hit the East Coast of the US, scammers were out in full force pretending to offer assistance to the afflicted. Now, if someone breaks into my house, I know to call the cops. If someone steals my wallet, same deal. But if I fall for an online scam, do I call the cops then too? Thing is, we know that scammers hide their location and identity. 
And let's be honest, they look after specific geographies. Do they really want to know about an online scam orchestrated by scammers outside their jurisdiction? So I reached out to Action Fraud UK to find out what they had to say about all this. Okay, so my name is Max Bruce, and I'm from the National Fraud Intelligence Bureau, and we are based in the City of London. We work with Action Fraud, so if you report a fraud or a cybercrime within England, Wales, or the Northern Ireland, your report will come through to the National Fraud Intelligence Bureau, who will sort of link all the crimes together, will assess them, will time take sort of key banking information, telephone calls, uh, locations sort of any sort of MO that they can, and then put that into a a package that will then go out to law enforcement throughout England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. We will also look at how we can disrupt websites and bank accounts and telephone numbers, share intelligence with our partner agencies, and put out alerts to the public. Right. So when you're talking about disrupting these numbers, these are numbers kind of assigned or believed to be in the hands of a scammer? Yeah. Yeah. So like, a, you know, a bank account that um, money has been paid into, maybe, or, um, you know, a telephone number where people are receiving nuisance calls. You know, we believe that is the, the number that they're using to commit their crimes. Has the number of scams being reported gone up or is it kind of stayed stable over the last few years? Well, the, the number of crimes has gone up, but we are still very mindful that crime is sort of fraud and cybercrime is underreported. So one of the key things that we're trying to do is create awareness that if you are a victim that you should report. Do you think cybercrime and scams are underreported because the victim's actually embarrassed? They're nervous that cops, you might think, like, what an idiot for falling for that. I mean, I don't, I don't know if, if it's for that particular reason. I think there's a, there's a number of factors. People obviously get their money back in a lot of cases, may not even know they've been a victim, which is the really worrying thing. But also they may, you know, not be aware of where to report to. So it's really important that we sort of publicize ourselves. Yeah, because I, you know, if I got scammed, I think in my head, I would be thinking the person who scammed me is probably not in the UK, right? And what can you do? What can my local authorities do about that? And you're right. If you get your money back from the bank or whatever, it kind of takes the pressure off, I guess, of reporting it. But so you're saying it's really important to report. So why is that a good thing to do? Certainly, it sort of builds the threat picture. So we can actually know the true threat of what we're facing. And we can, we can work with other jurisdictions we you know it's a global issue now so it's about sharing intelligence globally but also the really key thing about reporting is that your report will be added to everybody else's report so if somebody may have been a victim but they may not have many details about the crime it will be linked with them so actually you can be helping you know their report and also helping all the other people that maybe don't know they've been a victim and also preventing future fraud and cybercrime from taking place hopefully Yeah. And I guess it also helps with like even staffing and resources and budgeting, because, you know, if you know it's a big problem out there and it's underreported, it doesn't help you guys if you don't have enough people actually looking into it. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that someone who acted with more skepticism online would be better suited to trying to avoid these kind of scams? Do you think it's a trust issue is what I'm getting at, actually? I think it's more to do with sort of how sort of sophisticated some of these scams can actually be, you know, and if if you get a telephone call and the caller ID shows a trusted number like your bank, mm. you are more likely to trust it. Same with, you know, a text message. If it appears in a thread that you're already having, it can be quite difficult to sometimes think, actually, is this a scam? 
the word scam kind of makes it sound almost cheeky as opposed to a criminal offense. Like, has anyone lost their shirts with the scam that you know of? Oh, 100%. Absolutely 100%. You know, we will see scams where people have lost everything. You know, and like say, sometimes the word scam, it may not sound as sort of severe, but actually we need to sort of think about that terminology. A scam is a fraud, a fraud is a crime. And, you know, somebody could lose a small amount of money or they could lose their life savings. And we do see that. And, you know, the sort of the effects can be devastating. We obviously have a blind spot because we keep falling for scams. Yep. So what are the tricks that you're seeing today? And maybe they've changed over the last, you know, five years, say? Technology has moved on. And so people are now allowed to use sort of number spoofing and actually make things seem a lot more genuine. The sort of scams that we see is um, people are very trying to be very exploitive of seasonal topics. Um, so maybe like the time when you've got student loans coming through or or tax returns, you know, we see a high spike in sort of in sort of these types of scams. For example, when there was the the BA data breach, yeah. um, you know, it was kind of going around on Twitter and there wasn't like the official lines yet, but we were already seeing fake BA customer emails, you know, being sent out. Um, so people are really trying to be responsive and anything they see in the news, you know, maybe disaster sort of uh, relief charities, those sorts of things, trying to exploit those types of situations. But in terms of sort of the tactics, I mean, certainly the ones that we see which have been successful as more things around the use of urgent language. So, you know, urgent expires immediately. Putting us into panic as a recipient, as a victim. Exactly. Yeah. It's trying to get you to make that um, sort of really quick response where, you know, you might not think necessarily right at that moment so like i say it's really important that you take that time just to step back i mean sort of tax returns maybe and you know even with a refund for example we'll see something saying you know you are owed money you're due money back but it's time limited so complete the form as soon as possible these sorts of things are really sort of the lures that will will get people time and time again we also see it on the flip side you know congratulations you have won would be like you know a heading that might make people sort of click on a link or widely recognition exactly you know and you know like i say with the sort of the digital footprint that we put out there people might mm. look at um, you know a simple tweet they put out about a restaurant that they've gone to may actually result in them receiving a, a spoofed email from the restaurant being you know you were the 100th customer of the night or something complete this right. form and you'll get a, a voucher you know, you know, simple things like that can still be very sort of you know, successful for the criminals. And social engineering, does it play like a massive role in scams? Is it something that you see in almost every single scam or, or do we make too big of a deal about it? Um, no, social engineering is, you know, is hugely prevalent within these scams. The, the most successful sort of that we see is still telephone and text messaging. So actually where you have that sort of human interaction with people is still far more likely to you know, bring success to the criminal as opposed to a, an email. You know, so sort of that sort of thing, sort of computer software service frauds, for example, are very sort of uh, successful at the moment. And we see a lot of reports about that where someone actually rings them up and has that sort of human engagement with them. Now, I've been getting a lot of calls from Microsoft about my computer being damaged and having a virus. Okay. <laughs> now, these numbers come in and I choose just to block them when they come in. But I haven't reported these to action fraud. Is that something that I should do? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, like I say, computer software service fraud is, is a huge issue at the moment. I mean, last year, I think we had about 22,000 reports. 
and over yeah. 21 million pounds reported lost due, due to these types of scams. You know, if you do have any information or you have a number or something like that, then yes, it's, it's, it's really important that we, you know, we have these sorts of numbers and this information because we, you know, we may actually help prevent somebody who does answer the phone and does fall for it. So, uh, you know, I'd advise everybody to report if, uh, if they have information. Okay. And what, other than reporting it, what other changes need to happen for us to catch more of these scammers internationally and nationally? We need to work better with industry and, and, you know, make sure we build up those strong relations as well. So, we're, I mean, we're working very closely with like the banks, for example, and uh, we're introducing things like the banking protocol where all the people on the shop floor are, are sort of been given some basic training. So they're aware of some sort of vital signs that then they can sort of use the banking protocol, call the police, and hopefully we can stop that. So it's, it's about law enforcement, but it's about awareness. It's about everybody sort of pulling together, supporting each other. And, you know, hopefully we will, you know, and just create that awareness, really. Okay. And before we go, is there a scam that was most memorable to you, either for its cunning or idiocy or quirkiness? So within our, our team, every week, we put out a, a sort of a, a scam of the week, if you will, and we call it Fishy Friday. And um, so it's the sort of things that we've seen a lot of during the week. Um, so we put, we put it out on social media and forms. And one of them that sort of stuck out to me because it sort of in, included everything within the scam is that the first part of it was um, somebody had got hold of someone's email account and they had um, sort of sent sent an email uh, to a, a business partner asking them to make a payment because they were going to be away for a few days. So it was kind of like the start of like your, your mandate fraud and sort of changing your banking numbers to make the payment. So that was sort of the first stage of it. And then the person had, uh, you know, taken the instructions and gone to, you know, change the bank details to pay uh, the money. So they went to pay it and the bank account wasn't correct. So they couldn't pay the money. So then they saw the number on the invoice, rang the bank or what they thought was the bank to actually then speak to the criminal. So the criminal didn't want to sort of just get that quick win of of a payment. They wanted to actually try and build a relationship and create that sort of social engineering environment. They also want, you know, could then use that situation to, you know, get them to verify their accounts and sort of, you know, get get a lot more sort of information from them than just the payment. Kind of included many, many steps. So I think that was quite a, a memorable one. Yeah. So it kind of tells you how organized it is. It's not just some spotty kit behind a computer. No, no. I mean, like you say, this can be sort of serious organized crime groups. Yeah. What you guys want most from us is report these scams to you so you guys can build a more accurate picture of what you're actually dealing with. Yes, please. Yeah. Make sure you report. <laughs> this was Carol Terrio for the CyberWire's Hacking Humans. All right. So an interesting window into the types of things that are going on in the UK when it comes to battling this, these things. Right. Yeah. We've heard stories before about where people have been in, too embarrassed to report their own fraud victimization. So yeah, I think this does happen more frequently than anyone wants to admit. I'd like to see a study done on it, but I don't know how you would even begin to select a population for that. Again, one of the biggest factors in, in any of these attacks is an artificial time constraint. You know, you need to do this now, trying to short circuit your thinking process. I had a couple of weeks ago, we had the, the guest who said, go get a cup of tea. <laughs> right, you know, right. Relax. Right. Think about this for right. a And minutes. as we said earlier in today's show, ask a friend. We don't have uh, action fraud here in the U.S. We do have a couple of resources. You can take a look at the FTC's consumer website, and that's consumer.ftc.gov. And they have a scams tab there, and you can look at all the latest scams that are going on. You can report a scam to the FTC at ftc.gov slash complaint. 
If you've actually been victimized and sent money to a scammer, you can file a report with the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center at ic3.gov. Uh, you can also call your state's attorney's office as well. Yeah, you know, I was sort of visiting with my folks recently. You know, they live in an over 55 community, mm-hmm. and I noticed they had a brochure on their coffee table that was from the Maryland state's attorney, and it was a nice glossy brochure all about avoiding scams. Oh, excellent. So my sense is it was sent to senior citizens. I thought that was interesting outreach that the state's attorney is being proactive about this, trying to get the word out to folks who are certainly targeted. All right. Well, that is our show. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 